Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hey everybody, welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Leo Rossi. Before we get to Leo, here's a few announcements. First, our website is TravelTalesPodcast.com, and there you'll find some photos of our guests, some stories that they've written, some stories that I've written. You can find links to their social media. You can find links to our social media, which is Travel Tales Podcast on Instagram, Travel Tales Pod on Twitter. We have a Facebook page. Go follow us there. We have a YouTube channel. If you can follow us there, I would appreciate that. Subscribe to all these things, please. We are on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. So if you listen on any of those platforms, please give us a good rating because that helps more people find the show and it boosts our presence there. And that's a nice thing for you to do and it costs you nothing, so I'd appreciate it. If you think you'd be right for the show, or maybe you know somebody would be right for the show, or maybe you want to write me and ask some travel questions, or tell me nice things, you can write me at TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. That's TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. I'm recording this right now on a cruise ship, not the one that I recorded with Leo, our guest today. That was last week, coming back from Hawaii. This week, I'm in Alaska. Been good so far. Shows have been going well. Travel is back. It's summertime. The airports are crowded. Airline prices are starting to reflect that. So if you're planning a trip, start checking flights now because they are going up. I had to fly up to Juneau from LA and I have to go through Seattle on Alaska Airlines. And that was Monday. That was on a Monday afternoon. And man, was that airport crowded. It's amazing the difference in crowds once uh, school is out. Anyway, last week I flew out to Maui caught a ship and took it all the way back to LA. I tend to not like doing that crossing because that's uh, it's five days at sea, which is rough because basically you're just on the ship and you're trapped. Nothing out your window but water. My advice, even though I perform and get paid on these ships, if it was me traveling, fly it. <laughs> Why spend five days at sea playing bridge with strangers when you can fly there in five, six hours from Los Angeles? But hey, that's me. To each his own. That's the beauty about travel. There's a million ways you can do it. Anyway, on that ship was a guy named Leo Rossi, who was what they call an enrichment speaker on Princess. He's not an entertainer, per se. He's uh, giving speeches and lectures during the day. I guess you couldn't really call it a lecture. It's a presentation. And basically, he tells stories of his many years on the road, on tour with some of the biggest rock bands ever. This is a guy who was on the road with Fleetwood Mac during their 70s heyday during the Rumors album. He's toured with the likes of the Beach Boys, Billy Idol, The Who. Yeah, the biggest of the big. So in watching his presentations, I was go, I gotta, I gotta sit down with this guy and get some travel tales from him. <laughs> the name of his presentations is the same name of his organization, Knights of Rock. And that's Knights spelled with a K as in Knights of the Round Table. Leo was a native of San Pedro, California, Ironically, where our boat was docking. <laughs> That's like one of the main shipping ports of not only California, but the country. 
And our ship was coming in there, but that's his hometown. And he started out doing lights and uh, for production shows while he was still in high school. Realized he had a knack for it. Worked at the Long Beach Auditorium where all the big bands in the early 70s all played there. We're talking Led Zeppelin and, and as big as they come. And these bands realize this kid is good at what he does. And he works very cheap. <laughs> and they like that. They like good and cheap. Everybody does. So once Leo turned 18 and finished high school, he started going on the road with these bands. Went from doing the lighting to being a tour manager. Went around the world. Australia, Asia, Europe, Africa. You name it, Leo went there. So needless to say, he has a lot of travel tales. So I'm warning you now, this episode is really rock and roll heavy. And that's fine by me because anybody who knows me knows that that's my wheelhouse. And if you're looking for backstage dirt, Leo's not that kind of guy. But it doesn't mean he doesn't have great stories about some of the biggest names in rock and roll. Leo wrote a book about his many travel tales and his life in the music business. It's called When the Devil Smiles, the Angels Frown. And all these things and all the information you need about Leo, you can find at knightsofrock.com. Again, that's knights with a K. Buy the book. They also have CBD products. And all of it goes to charity. And I respect them for giving something back. He's been very blessed in life, and he knows it. He's been through a lot, and he's still very positive on life and has a great attitude. I recorded this with these two little lavalier mics I take on the road with me and record it right into my iPhone. My mic was a little hot, so I'm hoping in this editing process I even it out a little bit. So I'm just warning you now. It's also a little bit of a longer episode than normal, but hey, Leo, as you can imagine, has a lot of travel tales. So I could have heard him talk all day. And you can hear him talk right now. Let's rock it out with one of the Knights of Rock, Leo Rossi. It's hard when you do an audiobook, you read some of the stuff you wrote, and you're going like, God, in your head you're going, God, I should have wrote it different. Or, or literally, you know what? Mike, it's like, wow, why did I write that that way? Or you, you, you like you, you're self-editing on the fly. Did you have an editor, or is it self-published? No. So here's the new deal about writing books, man. Editors are sort of a thing of the past for what we do. Um, there's editors for grammar, and there's editors for spelling and stuff like yeah. that. But we have a thing called a book doctor, and a book doctor is someone who takes your manuscript and they read it and they don't suck the soul out of it and they don't tell you what to do. They're just good people with really good ideas and say, you know, that paragraph, you can probably narrow it down to three words or three sentences or whatever and by I think this and that and have you thought about this and hey, why did you, what did you mean by that? And you know what, I'm getting this and really, really cool because my book doctor that I picked was like a technical writer but he was so descriptive so when I gave him my original manuscript and notes, which was like, you know, unbridged, it's huge, um, he was very candid with me, and he says, you know, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to be honest with you. It's a good book, but it's not great. He goes, it can be great, but let me tell you something. Nobody gives a f, f about you. They just don't. You can swear, by the way, on this. Well, he goes, you know, he goes <laughs> yeah, that's what he told me. He says, nobody cares. Yeah. He goes, but as I read your manuscript and the people that you were with and these great bands, you became a character in their life. And I fell in love with you as a character. And he goes, I'm really blown away how, where you came from and where you ended up. And he says, I see through your whole life, your Italian Catholic upbringing sort of seeped into this world. And 
So he says, my suggestion would be write your first you know, paragraph, your first chapter or two about your upbringing because everything that's in the hedonism of rock and roll that you fell into, you sort of re reflect back to that little world and that's your story. And he goes, and I fell in love with you as a character. And it, re it really worked. It really worked. It did. And that's, that's the way I'm approaching all of it now. Um, more reflective and, you know, and learning not to use words like they, them, or it. I never use it because it is something. Mm -hmm. you know? So, you know, you just say, that's what it was. You know? <laughs> that's what the cold day was when I, you know what I mean? And yeah. You, you take it out. So, and then your words tend to really flow and get more narrative. Well, so. I need a doctor. I need a script. Book doc. doctors are great. I got them all. I got, I got a lot of them. I mean, I'm doing it now. Too. Okay. Because I've really like uh, found a niche for it, so and a book doctor, you know, they they, they charge you to read the book, and you know, to, and you just you give them the man, but you you're there for them to call on you. They they send you, hey, I like this chapter, but a little long, a little long winded, or hey, not enough. You mm -hmm. need to dig deeper with your emotion. I feel the emotion, but it's just not there yet. You know, and how right. about if you think about this? And they never tell you what to do. They give you great suggestions, and you take them or you don't. Well, now that you brought up the book, give us the title of the book and uh, <laughs> plug away. We'll get our plugs out uh, immediately. The title of my, my book now, uh, the first book, is When the Devil Smiles, the Angels Frown. Oh, right. I saw my that on Amazon. My, my Life and Times in Rock and Roll. And um, I had a lot of kickback from a lot of people about putting the word devil in the title. <laughs> they just thought it was, you know, don't glorify the devil, this and that. And I, I had, oh man, my, I had pages of titles, but I kept coming back to that when I finally put my foot down and says no. Because if you read the book, that's what it really is. It's the devil and the angel. That was my whole life in rock and roll. And, um, and what, you know, really, it's, it's a life story. It's not, you know, I think what people say is, I think the biggest compliment I do get on the book and a lot of the um, reviews is, I felt like I was right there with you. I felt like, man, the way you describe, describe being on tour and how you felt and what you saw, and that's that's what it really is. I mean, you know, you can go all these bands I was with, you can go read about them on the internet, and you can do all the bullshit, all the truth, all the untruths, and everything. But you know, when you put like all of us that were really there, and you see what we felt and what we actually saw in our own words, not to throw anybody under the bus, but just say this is what it was really like then the whole thing just sort of percolates where people are going, wow, I dig that because it's true. It's real, you know? And your second book is called? Uh, the working title right now is An Old Guitar with New Strings. <laughs> How is it different title. from the first book? Okay, my first book was from my inception all the way up until I left Fleetwood Mac in 1992, 93-ish. And then I have a center section which is a real life story about raising children with a bipolar, a bipolar alcoholic ex-wife or wife who's doing fantastic by the way um, and how I gave up everything and I started a record label all around digital technology. It's a great, great American success story. It's rags to riches, the whole bit. And then when my daughter turned 17 years old and she got her driver's license and my children are all grown up um, you know, circumstance, destiny, and fate, I ended up back on the road. So with my book doctors in hand, they said, listen, here's what, I, you know, you should, don't write this chronologically. And I don't write chronologically, sometimes I do, but um, so I'm writing 2006 when I went back onto the road to 2018 when I retired. Okay. So I'm writing that part now, going back on the road, and I'm going to back into 
the building of the record label, raising the children through the craziness of all that. So, yeah, I have a bunch of books in line. I'm ready to ready to write. But so this book is about my renaissance going back on the road after a 16-year break of not real full-time touring. And... Um, what it was like to, you know, a lot of things had changed. Yeah. I mean, you know, there was no more foreign currency. There was the euro, uh, the internet. You know, I was the first first guy to have what they called smartphones, which were the Apple iPhone, mm-hmm. because I was tied with Apple because of Fleetwood Mac. Um, so when I was on the John Fogarty tour in 2006, when we jumped in, in 2007 in June, the iPhones were released. <laughs> Apple gave me 10 iPhones to give to the band as a beta test to say, hey, what would you like the kind of apps and everything on the road? So out of the 10, I think I only had three people on the tour that said, well, you know, what is this? And took, you know, that adopted it. But um, so now with technology, you know, I mean, you know, back then we didn't even have fax machines yeah. when we ran these tours. Now I'm saying I could have done the whole thing on a friggin' <laughs> iPhone. Yeah, I always love that scene in one of my favorite movies is Almost Famous. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. When yeah, he said, we yeah. got to send send the uh, story, and it's like, we got to get you uh, to the office in New York. They got a mojo. A mojo. And it'll send 15 minutes a page. It's yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we used to, like, you know, when I started touring and I was a production man, advancing shows was a pocket of, qu- a pocket of quarters and a, and a friggin' <laughs> legal pad at a truck stop. Mm-hmm. You know, calling up and, you know, and, and, and but, you know, Almost Famous is funny because Cameron used to tour with us, and him and I were like the two youngest on the tour. <laughs> and, you know, I remember, you know, so when I saw Almost Famous and I started seeing some of the fiction scenes that were really, you know, nonfiction yeah. events, you know, like in the in the locker room talking about the ice at Madison Square Garden with Jimmy Fallon playing yeah. the manager is, is basically Irving Azoff talking about to Fleetwood Mac saying, you guys need a manager. Your, your tour manager can't do it. You guys are too big. And... You know, so all these things. So when I see when I see that movie, I love that movie. But um, you know, it, it's funny to see the transitions of of the business of you know where where it came from and then where now where it's ended up. You well, know. let's talk about your journey because I wanted to get you know just yeah. like, your background real quick. You grew up what, San Pedro. I grew up in San Pedro. I was born in San Francisco. Moved to let's sort of live by city. San Francisco, San Pedro, which is the Southern California port town. Yeah. Uh, LA. That's what we're porting yeah, in a couple days. Oh, you know, I never thought in a million years that I'd be like, you <laughs> Did know, you use the sea ships? Always. Cruise ships always my father time? was a captain. Oh, really? So I loved the sea. I used to, when I was little, I used to go out to sea with him all the time. So I always loved the ocean. But, you know, he, he, he I literally was supposed to be a longshoreman. That's what yeah. they had slated for me. My brothers and sisters were all studious brainiacs and overachievers. <laughs> and here I am going like, eh. You know, I don't yeah. know. And my father said, it's you okay. get in the union. My father was going to put me in the union and had right. wealth and, you know, retirement. Uh, but I had other plans, you know, because what had happened was is I literally, I, and, you know, I tell this in Knights of Rock, and it's called a Knight's Tale, because uh, Knights of Rock's a nonprofit. Everything we do is nonprofit. It's me and a bunch of my friends that were just so fortunate to grow up in classic rock. And how we all got into it, it was our own story. But when collectively we got together, we d- definitely made a difference with these bands. You know, back then there was no separation band and crew. We were one big family and we just went out to make a difference. So for me, it was really, um, I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. You know, I never, I never, you know, had a plan. Um, but I literally was walking down the halls in high school and um, I needed an elective class. I had two electives. I had on the other side. And this teacher came up to me out of nowhere and says, Kid, come here. He goes, um, 
I need one more kid and I can get the hell out of here. He goes, will you sign for my class? I, I, and I go, well, what is it? He said, it's at the stage production. He goes, you do all the assemblies, we do plays and everything. And I said, well, he goes, listen, I'm telling you, it's cool. He says, there's absolutely no homework. Well, this is a class? Yeah, stage production. He goes, Jeez, there's no homework. They didn't he offer goes, that in my no, high school, no, no. stage he goes, production. He goes, there's no homework. He goes, you get to work all the assemblies. I get you out of class a lot. He goes, you know, and it's really, really simple. He goes, you're going to love it. So I oh. said, wow, no homework. I said, okay, I'll try it. <laughs> so I loved the class because all of a sudden it was like, wow, it was like, it was like real life art and doing plays. So we ended up going to a field trip. Uh, across to Long Beach, the old auditorium, the Long Beach Auditorium, a Civic Light Opera play. And um, it was intermission, and I hated it. Man, I just couldn't. I was like, wow. So I was going to, like, literally just go outside and hang out, hang on the bus. But as I was leaving, I saw this door, and I walked through the door and ended up backstage. <laughs> so the house lights went out, and the show started. So I found a chair out of the way, and I just watched it from backstage. And man, the scenery, and like all of a sudden you see all these guys like getting ready to go, and then the lights would come down, and it was this choreographed dance. And then the actors would, lights would come up, and the actors would hit the stage. And I was going like, this is friggin' cool. This is magic. <laughs> I loved it, right? So the show ends, and, I, and I'm walking out. And as I'm walking out, I got this guy caught me. The technical director, he said, what, so who are you? What are you doing here? And I told him, I said, well, I didn't like the play out there, but this is great. And So they called the drama teacher, this guy, John Cleese, who, and he said, he said. Not the John Cleese. No, no, no. His <laughs> name was John, John. Yeah, but yeah, I wish. <laughs> so he goes, you go stand over there. And then what he did is told Kim Killingsworth, who was the technical director of, the, of Long Beach Civic Light Opera, he says, I don't think we should punish this kid. He's really good at it, and he likes it, and. So he convinced them to, to make my punishment to be a stagehand and work with the stagehands. So I had to go down on the weekends and work and work it off. But I just loved it and I became really, really, really good at it. So then they offered me an apprenticeship. Oh. So then I go back to high school and my guidance counselor, she's going like, well, I think I have something for you. So she had called the Civic Light Opera and said, if you sign a piece of paper that he gets here every day and, you know, then we can give him school work credits and a, and a credits for the class. Wow. Okay. So I got school credits. Like I, I'm talking two classes worth of credits in the afternoon. And so by the time I became a senior, literally I had one class. I had government <laughs> and homeroom because I had so many credits that I can graduate. Because she said, you know, back then you didn't need to go to high school. I mean, to PE, you just needed, you didn't need to pass PE. You just needed the, you know, you needed the credits for it. So the, the credits that she got were in lieu of PE, which I actually hated because my brother was an all-world athlete, everything. Right. <laughs> so what started, I was doing the plays, but then the stagehands kept calling us and going, hey, um, we have a band coming through, and if you guys want to work it, because we, we don't like that, those long hairs. And, right. So why don't you guys work the show? So all the big bands started coming through Long Beach because Long Beach Arena was the place yeah. to play. And you're like 16? I was 15. Actually, oh. 14 when I, when I got busted. I was okay. Give me so, a year and I'll guess the bands. Give uh, me, give, give 72, me, I'm 72 to 75. Oh, that's the greatest time. So wait a minute. So okay, everybody, were the big enough ones like Zeppelin, would they yep. come to that one? Yep. Oh, they did. It was yep. that big. Zeppelin, The Who, Deep Purple, oh. Jethro Tull, Alice ELO, Cooper. Alice Cooper, Pointer Sisters, Beach Boys, Elvis Presley. Elvis came through? Elvis went through the auditorium. Oh. I got to work them all. 
I get give me one all story. those shows. Did you see the Colonel? Was he there? No, I didn't see the Colonel. Okay. <laughs> no, I don't. Well, I would only think I would have even remembered him. It was just like I remember Elvis was pretty, to me, little smaltzy. Right. Oh, didn't like. Well, he, but yeah, people don't realize it was just like Elvis was not cool at that point. No. You know, he was like put on weight when everybody was like. He spent the '60s when the world was changing, making these dumb movies, and like he wasn't cool. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then he was working Vegas, which was really not cool. That was like where your parents went. You know, it was, mm-hmm. Vegas was not hip. You know, it was no, residencies were like yeah. So you, who's cool, Alice Cooper or Elvis at that point? To yeah, a teenager. no, you know what? I, I mean, mean it and, was I, like, and I and you knew who he was, of course, but, it was like, but you didn't care. You didn't care by that. Yeah, you were more into like wow, you know, Robert Plant. And yeah, Zeppelin's the New York Dolls are coming. <laughs> yeah, so I started seeing the same road guys coming through. Right. They were, there wasn't a lot of them. So, like, there was a company called Shoco. There was one called Continental Lighting, Tyco Brace Sound, uh, Lone Star Lights. So all these lighting companies started touring with the bands. Um, but they kept coming and seeing me there. So I used to be able to fix anything because the, the union guys taught me. So, like, you know, if a mic didn't work or a light bulb wouldn't work or if they had something, they would they would always, hey, kid, you could fix that because I always knew to start at the source and work back, and I would have it fixed in a minute. So, man, I was getting tour offers like when I was really young. Hey, come on, we got a bunk for you. Oh, Get on, Jesus. you know, and I looked at There's the no Camry way. Crow age. You know, I actually <laughs> went home and I told my father I'm dropping out of school because I got a job on tour. He said, you're not dropping out of anything. He goes, they want you now, they'll want you more later. Finish school. And so I did. And sure enough, I mean, I'm 18. Uh, I got out of school. I had a scholarship. I had two scholarships. I had one to the prestigious Los Angeles City College to do all their Shakespeare stuff. And I had one to the Jules Fisher School of Theatrical Arts at the University of Southern California. Partial scholarships, you're in. um, But no, man. Or you could go on tour with... The Doobie Brothers. So I was working with this one lighting company that moved from Oregon down into Southern California, and they had picked up a tour. And they called me up and said, kid, you want to come on tour? I go, yeah. I go, what is it? He said, oh, it's four weeks up and down Southern California stadium shows with The Who. Oh. I said, oh, yeah, great. So I jumped on a Who tour. I was 18. Oh, my God. This is the Keith Moon Who. Keith Moon Who. I'm oh, telling yeah. a Who story tonight on my show. So Beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> I got to keep moving. I joke. could, yeah. You know, I mean, I show videos out of my show of where I was standing on the stage watching. I couldn't keep my eyes off Keith. He was friggin' incredible. I mean, what that and insane. All of them, all of them. You know. <laughs> so from there, um, yeah, my career just took off, and then I then I met Fleetwood Mac, and then from there I was, you know, I started as a lighting tech. I rode the whole Fleetwood Mac way, but in, when they went into the studio, I would tour with other bands. So um, I was so young that 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 that. I ended up getting a lot of gigs because not, not only because of my knowledge, because of my energy. You know, I wasn't burnt out yet. I would do anything. I did so many shows for free. In fact, right. that's how I met Fleetwood Mac. Um, I was on tour with Loggins and Messina, and they needed a lighting guy, um, and they didn't have any money, so I just did it because I liked them. You know, I was like, "Wow, this is cool! I get to call lights." You know, um, and then they had a rehearsal and. The company I was working for didn't have any money, and they asked me to do it, and I knew the guys. I said, yeah, so I did this rehearsal for free. And when the band found out that I did the rehearsal for free, they said, do you want to do our tour? I said, yeah. <laughs> hey, that's our price. That's yeah. what we pay. Yeah. <laughs> this kid's cheap. Yeah. So, yeah. What, so, would they give you, like, a meal stipend or anything like that? No, the rehearsal, I didn't make a dime. But then <laughs> then when I went on tour, they obviously they yeah. paid. But, you know, but they were, like, so... Um, 
so in, enamored and thankful that I did it for free because they just wanted to record some of their stuff that they was that was coming up, which was the White Album, and then some of the new stuff they were thinking about. They wanted to play it live before they went into the studio. So, so it was really a yeah. So, so before all this was happening, before you started going on tour, when you were a kid growing up, I mean. What was your travel experience then? Had you really been many places? I yeah, mean, no, I traveled with my father on the some of the some of the oceans. Okay. He always took us on trips. Oh, that's went good. to Europe. Oh, you drove to back Europe. and forth to San Francisco. I'd been to Europe, and you know, I mean, I always loved to travel. Okay, so but what, music was always always in my blood. Right, you know. So what is it like traveling? I'm a big rock fan, and I've seen many many shows over the years, and I always wonder about the crew. There's a lot of work involved, but I'm wondering how much downtime you have. Do you get to even see when? like they, they interview bands and they go, "Oh, you got to see the world." He goes, "Man, I got to see the hotel room to the stage." Early on, early on, early on, when we used to do six, seven shows a week, when you know, not like today where you're doing one or two, and you know, there's <laughs> yeah. eighteen thousand trucks. I mean, which is another thing we'll get into, but. <laughs> No, we 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 used our time wisely. We didn't. We did six, seven shows a week. We'd be in an arena. You'd do the show, and you'd get out late at night, and you'd be in a truck stop. You'd had dinner. You you know there was no night or day, man. You had periods of rest um, because it was just you know and you know a lot of the whole thing about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah, it was there, but drugs were not sometimes a luxury for us. They were a necessity. <laughs> it's to us stay awake. It was dangerous. It was dumb. But it was the time, sign of the time and the culture of the time. But it's something we needed to do to stay awake. You would like literally be, you know, just grinding it, and you never knew what was going to happen. It could be a truck broke down. It could be there was snow. It could be that there was a labor strike. It could be anything. So you had to really be on your feet because, you know, people say, oh, oh, just cancel the show. Yeah, you want to cancel the show with a hundred thousand people in a stadium? <laughs> Watch civil unrest happen. Yeah, no, you don't want to see that. So there was a lot of pressure that people don't realize that we had to go through to to, to put that show on, you know? Was so, most of your sleeping done on the bus, or did you ever get a Whatever you could. You know, we used to have these big, giant piano cases that were foamed, and you'd, you'd see four or five guys huddle like puppies <laughs> just because it was a comfortable place. For lighting guys, they would set up in the day, in the morning, and then the sound guys and band, the band techs would come in. So the sound guys would like put up the lights and find a place to sleep, either on the bus or find a place to rest. And then, uh, so so there was almost like it wasn't hot bunking, but there were times that everybody had their, uh, you know, it was orchestrated. It was an orchestrated scenario. Wow. You know, uh, lighting guys were first in, last out. You know, and then the sound guys and then the band gear were always the those guys got to sleep in late. They get they were the darlings. You know, the band techs would come on stage and yeah. do a little bit of work with just a little bit of gear. But during the show, they were in the hot seat. You know, the guitar's out of tune or, you know, the the most important guy in a band is the sound guy. What's good to be in a good band if you have a horrible sound guy? It doesn't <laughs> right. matter. So, you know, that is a, one of the most. And then, you know, the lighting guys. And what goes if you can't, you can't see the band? And there was, you know, back then we never used lighting as scenery. We used lighting to complement what the band did. Now it's like... Yeah. You, you know, and I tell people, oh, I have a show. going on. <laughs> yeah, no, I have a show here. I called the Lost Concert with Fleetwood Mac, and I show some lost footage of how we did things. And I tell people, just because you have a million dollars worth of lights, you don't mean you, you don't have to use them, because that what destroys the... You know, I mean, when we started designing lights early on, a lot of us, we used to take psychology classes and we used to read up with subliminal subduction. The color red is angry. Crossing light beams is angry. Blue with straight light beams is comforting. So if you're going to have a nice ballad and you have red lights with yeah. crossing <laughs> beams, you're, you're screwing up the song, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. So, 
you know, there was a lot more to it back then, you know, and it's almost like in writing, you know, you're a comedian, but uh, back then when the First Amendment wasn't so loose, bands couldn't say F the president. (laughs) You had to figure out a way to say it, which made you had to be creative to write. Now you just say it. There's no art to that. Yeah, the uh, I always wonder, like, technological-wise, like, I remember seeing Woodstock, you know, or even the Beatles at Shea Stadium, when you hear about they were playing through the PA system, the same speakers where the guy would go, number 28, yeah, yeah, all little round, like, all crappy. A7s with yeah, large horns. And, and, and how crappy that must have sounded. Like, even like even Woodstock, I mean, how, how would those people in the back heard anything? You know, just like, and now, because sound systems are so... Technical, amazing now amazing the spread yeah you, they're the, smaller it's all based on economics though. yeah you know i mean to cover an arena now you have smaller speakers with the technology yeah you don't need you that know, wall no of you don't speakers, need those big giant cabinets anymore but you know again it's like you watched old videos of Jimi hendrix play the guitar with just a couple of pedals yeah and a, and a marshall amp that's pure, pure talent. There's no, there's no hidden, there's no hidden auto tune button or fuzz <laughs> right. or, you know, auto tune just kills me. But they finally got to the point where people say, you know, okay, I auto tune. So what? Here, push the button. Watch me do it. Yeah. They, 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 people don't care. But there's a great God, freedom. It makes me angry for young people, though. I mean, it just that they can make their own music in with a laptop in their house, which is. Good and bad in the way it's like if you had the technology as a kid and you would do it, you know, and you, you can. Know, I love it, but I really don't put it, it down. I do. I love it. The you know, problem is everybody can make music, and ninety percent of it is is horrible. <laughs> well, and know, getting anybody hey, to look, find it, you know, that's what, the problem. And look where we're headed right now with AI. Yeah. Look how many artists. Look how many people are writing songs. It's happening right now. They're writing songs. They're stealing somebody else's voices, and they're making that person's voice sing their songs and you think that it's your favorite artist singing this new song that some kid wrote yeah. and it's right there Paul McCartney's doing it right now with the Beatles the AI the AI Beatles with John Lennon I mean it's it's really going to get ri- there's no law for it you right. can use somebody's voice right now and there's no law that says you can't yeah and it's scary man yeah I oh, mean no. it is I get really it. really really scary so you know, but then again, technology is always going to change things. And I said, the people will go, well, technology doesn't even... Like you know, when we were young, how many times you hear your parents yell, get off the friggin' phone. Yeah. The phone was a technology, and it took up a lot of our time. Absolutely. A lot Absolutely. of our time. It's technology. TV, get away from that TV. That's right. MTV changed a lot. I remember that. So, so I didn't tell you this. So my first job in television, I was on, uh, I was a VJ on VH1. In 97, I was, that was my first gig in wow. TV. My first hosting gig. So, but it was interesting because it was this time where like videos were really on their way out. You know, so yeah, I was doing yeah. the countdowns. They were airing them at like nine in the morning. And people would watch them on treadmills, like Housewives, during the week, <laughs> because reality shows had started taking over. They were getting better ratings, so nobody watched videos anymore. MTV, so they were the lowest, you know? lowest rated parts of the day. You but know? you know what I say to people is, is you know, um, I say it in my show because I have a whole segment on it. Of, you know what what we created as the, in the seventies was called it's called classic rock. Yeah. What really created classic rock was MTV. Because MTV came in and people were why listen to the radio when you can watch it, you know, and have a video around it. So then all of a sudden Clinton deregulates the radio stations where you can only own eight radio stations. Yeah. They deregulated that. Now eight people owned all the radio stations. And they had no market share because no one was buying advertising. Yeah. So where did they go? They went back to that 
that great time, the 70s, <laughs> which was classic rock, and they created that format, and they named it classic rock. Yeah. That's exactly what they did. And then with VH1 and MTV, but, you know, people think, like, you look at MTV right now, and I'm sitting there going, like, MTV's creating some great content. They created the, whatchamacallit, um, Wait, Yellowstone the is yeah. MTV Studios. Yeah. Um, the uh, That movie Air, that's on Prime, about Jordan. MTV Studios. I mean, MTV Studios is all of a sudden producing Paramount and some amazing stuff. Yeah. But know? I remember when it came out. I mean, so it came out right when I was getting into high school. Right. And my my town in Illinois didn't have cable up until like a couple years into it. But I remember going to a friend's house who was a town over and he had cable. And it blew our mind. We sat there and just watched it for hours. Because it was just, you know, this is music you know, I grew up as a kid. Well, I was a, I'm a kid of the '70s, so we didn't get to see our. The only way to see our our bands was, was TV, going to yeah. see them live. Yeah, that it, was it. it. Not and that that was like, now you had them on TV, yeah. live con- HBO specials. It was crazy. And, you know, and, I mean, oh, it was, and so it it changed everything. So, yeah. So I've seen that, and then, and then I saw like the internet come. You know, and so I've lived through, and I'm really kind of the last pre-internet generation you know and yeah. and so there's always some new thing that comes but i mean i remember seeing the change when like grunge hit in the 90s and all these bands that we knew that just you couldn't get on the radio and you couldn't no. and we changed our programming but i had to learn again marketing you know when i got to vh1 you know they hired me to be like this comic and be acerbic so the audition was me going through like Spin and Rolling Stone magazines and making fun of whatever. And they loved that. Oh, that's real funny. You're making fun of it. And then I got there on the set and tried to do the same thing. And they went, oh, you don't, can't make fun of Mariah Carey because they might pull their video. And then I realized. Politics. Oh, they're all, you're just a marketing arm for the record companies. Exactly. And they're telling you what to play. This isn't a countdown that anybody votes on. It's just no. what they told you to and there was promote money. TLC I mean, this year. Think about the money of... <laughs> you know? uh, you know, back then they were you. You know, you were getting a, you know anywhere between half a million million dollars to create a video. Mm-hmm. I think one of the most genius things that happened when uh, it was in the eighties, Christopher Cross was on Warner's, and his voice was amazing. And the record, the music, yeah, he was he not just, video friendly. No, right. But what they did was brilliant. He had a manager named Tim, and Tim took the video budget. And what he did is he told Warner's, "I want to use it in a different way." So I think it was um, it's a half a million dollars or something. Well, they took the money. And they came to us and the Eagles, Fleetwood Mac and the Eagles. They paid us $5,000 a night for Chris to open the show and all the stadium shows. And in that, he got bunks, bus bunks for their crew, and they used our sound and lights. But when that guy got in front of 100,000 people a night or 20,000 or whatever it was, and he played Ride Like the Wind and Sailing and mm-hmm. everything, and um, look what happens. <laughs> So it was a genius move. It was a genius way to use the money because they knew they, you're right, he was not video friendly. Yeah. You couldn't do it. Because people thought that it was like a Kenny Loggins guy was going right, to yeah. you, know, you can't look like that and sound like that. The <clears throat> nicest guy in the world. Oh, I'm sure. I, I was my, one of my, it was my first job as a production manager and I love Chris. Uh, but man, I remember like the, the imaging issues and they, and they had to get out. He was from Austin, Texas and he wore those big giant football jerseys. <laughs> yeah, like, right. Dude, you can't wear that. The chubby dude, yeah, balding. You really, you're you not can't MTV wear that, but, but God, he was, he's such a nice guy and he was so good. What a great band and everything. You just knew. And then 
what happens? He goes, Arthur's theme with Burt Bacharach and Carol Bay Sager. And yeah. the movie goes like this. And that beautiful... <laughs> Boom. There it is. Yep. You know? Well, we'll get back to touring because you know, this is a travel thing. So I wanted to, like, your first yeah. tours... My first when tours. you went to Europe, when what was your first foreign tour when you left the country? My first foreign tour was Australia and Japan with Fleetwood Mac in 1977. I wish you would have seen my show. We 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 rented a cargo plane. Oh, no, Actually, I did see this part this on, one, on yeah. last, the last cruise I saw you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, the cargo jet. I mean, no one could do that. I well, mean, describe was, to the people. What, well, what happened was is the band tasked us to do this tour of Australia and Japan and Hawaii, um, but they wouldn't do it unless they had all their gear all their sound, all their lights, everything. They wanted their complete show because they didn't want to go down there and be half-ass. So they tasked us to do it. We couldn't do it with uh, ocean freight because our gear would have been tied up for months. And then uh, traditional air freight was just way too expensive. We had this guy that used to hang out, and he said uh, he was a pilot. He says, I, I can get you guys a cargo jet. And he flew for the CIA. He flew for Air America. Um, and he hooked us up with Trans International Airways. And they had this 16-pallet DC-8 that was very, very affordable. So we ran it through our touring co- our, our trucking company, Consolidated. So Consolidated, and we loaded all our gear. We stuffed it all in. But at the very, 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 very back of the plane were airline seats where us as a crew would fly. So we did the whole tour in the back of our cargo. So we didn't have to pay for commercial air, which was really expensive. But oh, it's yeah. so, so that offset. Did you put jump seats back there? No, they had first-class airline seats okay. and, a, you know, and a food warmer and some ice chests. And it was great. We could... We could smoke pot. We could drink. We'd do whatever we want. We didn't have to sit in our seats. We would lay on the floor. It was just, it was perfect. It was a great run. So when we got to Australia, we first of all loading the plane. We didn't know what the hell we were doing, and we had to reload it, load it, reload it. And so our day off, our travel day, we lost our day off, and also we had to go right off the plane, right to work. We set up at the Sydney Polo Ground, um, the the cricket grounds, and um, so. But why the plane was in Australia? Because uh, we were in trucks, we subleased the plane, uh, and they, it ended up to a, with a cattle company that was flying cows from <laughs> cattle from Sydney to India or wherever, and um, it just kept flying back and forth. And we sublet it out to this company, and we got it back. And my God, the condensation in the vents and oh! So we were flying from Sydney to New Zealand to do two shows, and the vents and the water started uh, the condensation. And, oh, it was horrible, like fertilizer. Oh, oh, so bad. Well, we did the shows in New Zealand. They cleaned the plane up. And then flying from New Zealand to Guam to Narita in Japan to get gas, we stopped in Guam. Well, we didn't make it. The plane had a mechanical. Oh. So we landed at an airfield, a naval airfield in, in New Guinea. And we landed in New Guinea with this broken plane. And this customs guy comes on board and says, hey, so whatever you do, please try to stay on the plane. And it says, dude, it's 120. We're getting off the plane. <laughs> he goes, well, don't talk to the locals. And we didn't know what he meant, but then we got off the plane, we looked in the cyclone fence, and there was all these, like, native mud men. And they had spears and loincloths, and they were looking at us, oh and we God. were looking at them. And so slowly but surely, we went over, and we started communicating with them. And we were there for, like, maybe six hours while the plane was getting fueled and fixed. And so we started having this, like, full-on party with these guys. And we were, getting, you know, we were giving them drinks, and they were Coke, and they were like, they'd never seen anything like this. <laughs> so... They started giving us ganja and shit, and we were smoking this stuff. Wow, wow! And we, it wasn't. It, it didn't smell like pot. We couldn't figure out what it was, but we were so. It was really, really amazing, right? And so, it was time to leave, and the king mudman is on the plane, 
and he wouldn't get off. And he kept telling the customs guy in his there that no, he wanted to go to heaven. He thought we were the, we were going to heaven on this big plane that they'd never seen before. And we we'll smoke a little more of this. Yeah, right, man. So, <laughs> so they finally got him off the plane, and we took off and we landed in Guam. And the pilots told us what had happened, and they could put on enough fuel just to get us there and to get us to to Hawaii, you know, and then to Japan. Did Japan, Hawaii, and flew home. But um, you know what? What we did is we realized when they reconciled the whole tour, we made more money off the jet than we did on the whole tour. <laughs> we made more money on the airplane on the jet. That's was the huge profit. So the tour was a huge success. But that was the ingenuity that we had had, you know, as a as a bunch of kids. And but here's really one thing that was really sun now. So not this cruise, but the last cruise, I did the story, and a guy comes up to me and he says, "Hey, um." You solved a 45-year mystery for me. And I says, what do you mean? He goes, I was in the Navy, and I was up in the jungle. It wasn't the Navy SEALs. It was uh, some other division. And they were waiting for food and alcohol and everything to be delivered to Ward. So they had saw our jet land, and they thought it was their jet. <laughs> so he said, we walked down, and they said, no, no, no. It's a, it's a jet that's having a mechanical. And so... They walked away. He said, for 45 years, he's been wondering who was on that jet. He remembers the exact day, the plane, everything. And he says, dude, I was in New Guinea with you that day. And I'm oh. all like, D-. so I wanted to get his story, but he says, you know, he says, I'm, I'm, it's military. It's anyway, yeah. I can't say it. But I thought it was so cool. He goes, but he goes, man, you solved this. Yeah. I, we always if, wondered who was on that if plane. If only he knew the, the party he missed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. But you know what he did tell me? He said, you guys are lucky because those aren't nice people. <laughs> he goes, that could have turned ugly on you. Believe me, I know Chief, blah, 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 blah. Oh and I God. knew him and this and that. He goes, that was not a really good time to be in New Guinea. I was in there going, oh, God, we dodged a bullet. But Give me your scariest flight. I know, getting back to uh, Almost Famous when the plane's almost going. Yeah, you that, know what? I don't, you told I that mean, Billy Idol story. Yeah, that yeah, was pretty yeah, cool. yeah, you yeah. That was, that was in the Alps, a little tiny Metro 23 prop plane. I wasn't afraid. You know, right. Because I know the, but... Uh, so you were Billy Idol. I was Billy crew. Idol. We left Vienna, and we were going into, actually flying, supposed to fly, we we're doing shows in Pisa, and we were going to fly into Genoa, but the pilot said, hey, we're small enough that we could fly into Pisa. I said, well, let's do it. But he says, but I got to tell you, he goes, there's some really bad weather over the Alps. And I said, well, is it dangerous? He said, no, it's just going to be really uncomfortable. He goes, I said, no, let's get to Italy. I don't want to, if I have to ground and get a hotel and unpack. And I said, let's just take a chance on it. You know, he said, as long as it's not dangerous. He said, no. So we take off. Hey, Buddy Holly took a chance. <laughs> well, I trusted the pilot. but So we got we got to the Alps, and man, we were, I mean, I'm talking, ditching and rolling. And, and I remember looking out the window, and I seen these huge, and they're like flying over, around the clouds and up and down. And then right near coming down the south side of the Alps, man, we hit this downdraft, and we just dove and kept falling and falling. I mean, I felt like my head was going to hit the ceiling. And everybody in the back is screaming and, um, you know, and everything. And I looked over and Billy's just loving it. Billy's going, ha, 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 ha. He's loving it, right? <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, oh, God, the band's going to kill me, right? <laughs> so he calls me over. And he, I go, first of all, I said, Billy, you okay, man? He goes, yeah. He goes, he calls me over. He says, they'll never die on a plane with Billy F and Idol. <laughs> I thought it was so funny because he was just like, you know. So we get, we land and, uh, like, you know. Three of his band members come up to me, and they, and, and I'm a night, and I'm, you know, I never, I could have just said, you know, like, 
F off, but I didn't. I said, I'm sorry, guys. I said, I didn't know it was going to be this rough, and I'll make it up to you and everything else. And they were like, you can't do this to us anymore. That was like, blah, 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 blah. So Billy was like maybe 10 feet to my to my left, and he walks up. He goes, guys, you're more than welcome next time to ride on the band with the effing crew. If You know, you, you, you know and, and, and I had this silent vindication, you know. <laughs> So they all got in the van and they shut the hell like, oh, up. Yeah, maybe this isn't so bad. Yeah, right. And I just so, but that was a scary flight. That was really scary. I mean, it was like, um, but I never thought we were going to go down. Cause like I said, but there, there's there was one. I was in the Seattle. I forgot what tour it was on. A DC-10 with no wheels, no front Oof. wheel. That was interesting. But they had to do a manual crank, and they did. But they still put us in a crash position. Um, God, there's been all kinds of them. What fire. About- I had a fire on a Viscount, a two-engine Viscount with Fleetwood Mac. We had a cabin fire. The plane, the cabin filled up with smoke. Oh God! What about your? What about so, a tour bus? Sorry, I mean we hear about tour, tour buses, buses crashing. Yeah, we have tour buses fire. Never a crash, but a lot of fires. Oh, fire! Early on, early on, we didn't have luxury buses, and one of the very first Fleetwood Mac tour buses. Some of the guys wanted to hook up an A track and back, and they did, and we're all sitting up front, and all of a sudden, we're looking back, and it's just flaming back there. <laughs> so we're. St- <laughs> fire extinguishers and the smell but you know what it, you know what um, you know it, it was still better than riding rent a car so yeah what about like was there a country you got to I mean you're a wide eyed kid you're going around the world was there a country you got to that you didn't expect to like that it just kind of blew you away we're like man this place is awesome um, that really impressed you Asia early on before the all the street signs had English on them when you used to have to bring a pack of matches from your hotel to give to the cab driver because that's the only way you can get back to the hotel that you couldn't you know so really the early early days of Asia was amazing China going into China for the first time and um, when the we still first started breaking that market open was amazing I always love Europe um, but I'd have to say Asia in particular uh, because it was so different. I mean, you're talking about a civilization that's millennials before us. The simple things that they do that you didn't notice, like an elevator going up is a high ding, an elevator going down is a low ding, you know, and little <laughs> yeah. things that they do that we don't, we don't, but, you know, and just their culture of food and celebration and, um, you know, it, it was really, really amazing to be in that part of the world when it wasn't so infiltrated by the West, mm-hmm. you know, um, that was early on. I'm talking 70s, you know. It was really, really, really different. Oh, yeah. Um, but, you know, there were some great parts of America that I had never seen. You know, driving through the south in the early morning when, you know, you're driving through the tobacco fields and to see the dew and the different colors that are coming off leaves. And, um, you know, so, you know, it's one thing when you toured when you were with bands when you were younger. You didn't hit all the big cities. You hit a lot of little cities. You hit the Midwest and you would hit... You know Cheyenne and Laramie and Fargo and you know places that you that that the real salt of the earth people and then you get down into the south you know and um, and you still saw the segregation touring with Al Jarreau in the seventies and you still saw a lot of the segregation of of people giving you know or you know or walking into a truck stop in the south and here you are looking like a rocker and yeah. you know, they're rednecks you know and uh, so that there there were some very uncomfortable moments but there's some beautiful moments too i think like i say in my shows the camaraderie of all of us together traveling together and being a part of something um you know and i uh, you know my the fleetwood mac show i have a part about sex drugs and rock and roll which is how the crew initiated me with an older woman but i i tell that story for one reason because i still felt i was out of place 
And to me, that's the world's biggest poverty. It's not food. It's being unwanted and unloved and don't think that you matter. That's a detriment to people. And the minute you feel that you're a part of something and you're accepted, your world can really change. And, you know, so that's one thing that we always did as in the music business. We always had made a point to make people part of our world and try to take them away from theirs for no matter what. And it was a true mission, you know. So I think that 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 that's a huge part of what we did that's gone now. That's did gone. you ever tour Africa with anyone? I did. I did Sun City. I did that with Al Jarreau. Um, he did Sun City. Yeah. That, you yeah, know, what year was that? Was that after uh, the protests of uh, no, the 80s? Or no, no, that well, was, it was still that segregated. Was, was, yeah, 70s. Late 70s. For Al, what was that like? It was hard. It was different because, you know, but you didn't, you, you just went there and you went out. You, it's yeah. not like you had to drive through anything. Uh, but, you know, a lot of the world, uh, that's one thing. Touring with Al Jarreau was great because you always went to exotic places because that's what his his fan base was. Fleetwood Mac went to the big cities. I mean, you know, what yeah. it was like to be in East Berlin. It was a trip. Yeah. I you went know? through Checkpoint Charlie and the, yeah. that was the, and the last summer of it, but well, I didn't know it was going to be. In my book, I write a story where we were going through East Berlin and we didn't want to stay. You, you, you didn't, you, when you were a crew back then, you didn't stay at hotels, you stayed at brothels. <laughs> so we would drive through East Berlin and we would stop at a brothel for the night. Right. Now, a brothel, okay, <laughs> but a brothel when you were in East Berlin was a very respected type situation back then it really was i mean they, they it's hard to understand but it was true um and um you know i remember i was scared to death i was scared because i had the italian catholic upbringing i was like this is not right you know yeah but staying in east berlin i mean you were allowed so you didn't play west berlin you you we went played west berlin but we had to drive through east berlin oh yeah yeah so other than spending the night and stopping they allowed you to stop and eat and do things and we would yeah. stop at brothels okay yeah and it really, you know, it came from, to me, uh, the first time I... Uh, so it was, Germany, you were it was from East Germany. It was from, yeah, East Germany. And a lot of it was from the, the, the crew of Queen. Uh, those were the guys at first. You know, and, and then we used to all, like, the Queen sound guys were our sound guys. And we all, <laughs> we all inter, intermixed. And, you know, so it was like, hey, you guys, if you go through East Berlin, stop at the, the Land of a Thousand Nights. It's a great place, you know. And they, they feed you and everything else. And you don't have to partake. Right. It's a great restaurant of food, great playing, and if you want, you partake, you partake. It's a completely different world, but, you know, here I was 19, yeah. scared to death, <laughs> you know, scared to death of all of that, you know. And you go to Amsterdam and see all yeah, that, the red the light, red light and all yeah. that, you know, and it's just so, you know, it, it, it's different, different world, different times, different world, but, um, yeah, you know, but I think that traveling was the... The, the the cherry on the ice cream for us, you know, you, the, even if you got that one day off, you know, you, the, 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 so much happened in that one day that it made the rest of the days working. But working with the local people and the local caterers, and even if you had 20 minutes to go outside of the back of the arena, and it was worth it. Yeah. It was worth it. Give me the worst hell gig you ever did. Like, you ever show up at a place where like, everything's wrong? The venue's horrible. The sound is bad. Man. The, the many, crowd is terrible. How the, many do you want? <laughs> and we all have them, but I'm like, is one really stand out in your mind that you just remember, oh, that was a particularly horrible gig? The Scope Arena in Norfolk. We Virginia. Had, yeah, we had two trucks break down, and it's a very, very, very hard venue to work because the trucks have to roll down into the floor. So the two trucks that broke down were one half of the sound and the band gear. Um, and the, the, 
luckily the part of the sound we didn't need because it wasn't that big of an arena. So we had obviously phone conversation, not cell phone. Hey, we're this is what's happening. So we were, um, and so we had the lights set up and we had the sound set up, and it's literally the hardest venue, one of the hardest venues at that time to work. Um, and lo and behold, like maybe at showtime, the band gears showed up, um, and we had everything ready for them. And which uh, band? Fleetwood Mac. Oh, it is. And, <laughs> We got the show off. We were maybe an hour 15 late, you know, but that night obviously being rushed, feedback and stuff in the wrong place. And, <laughs> you know, it was just like, okay. But we never canceled, you know? I mean, we never canceled gigs. I mean, we had roofs fall in. We had everything. But Where did a roof fall in? In uh, Orlando at the Tangerine Bowl. <laughs> One of those. Nobody had an outdoor roof. Heard? No, luckily, um, our, our riggers uh, had anchored the sound towers. It was an outdoor gig, and we had two giant scaffolds on each side of the stage with all the PA, the sound. Well, the riggers didn't like the way it uh, looked, so they had taken steel wire and anchored the sound towers left and right, so in case something did happen, the towers wouldn't fold in. Well, lucky they did that, because we had this outdoor roof. It was Kenny Loggins, Bob Seger, Fleetwood Mac. Good and, show. Um, yeah, it was a great show. <laughs> uh, but we didn't tilt the roof back, and it rained. It's just one of those Florida rains. There was a big, giant water bubble that collected in oh. the middle of the roof. So me and one of the carpenters, his name was Shark Boy. That was his road name. We went on this air ladder, and we had taped these buck knives onto these poles, and we were going to try to poke holes, let the water drain. And as we got up there, the, th- the, th- the roof was so thick that the knives couldn't cut it. And all of a sudden, we started hearing... <laughs> So fuck, we got to get down. So as I got to the base of the ladder, the roof had the roof structure broken half. Oh. Now, if they didn't anchor the sound towers, the whole thing would have folded in and smashed. Well, it broke in half, and the roof fell down. But the sound towers were connected to the roof, so it caught the weight. So the roof ended up literally six, seven feet above the stage, crushed the gear some of the gear, but just hundreds of, I mean, thousands of gallons of water on everything. <laughs> and at that time, we were done sound checking and Seeger was setting up. So, and Loggins had his gear up, so everything soaked. Everything was soaked. So, we gathered our thoughts. I, I ended up face down mud or backstage, and I went on stage, and so, God, there's guys on stage, and I ran up on stage, and luckily, no one got hurt. So, we all gathered and said, okay, so how are we going to pull this off? Well, first things first, let's get everything off the stage. So we got everything off the stage in the trailers with every blow dryer fan, and everybody <laughs> started blowing off the equipment. That was the first thing. Then we cleared the stage off, and then we said, okay, so how are we going to resurrect the roof? So the crowd was in, and they had got drenched, and they loved it because it was so friggin' hot. So we had moved it. We had to make an announcement. So we moved the crowd back maybe you know 50 yards very easily and gently and then the idea was is to bring two forklifts in the big giant ones lift the front of the roof up and then connect them and then we put a giant truss in the middle of the stage right down in front (laughs) that would hold it up and we told the band you're gonna have to perform around this truss because that's the only way we're gonna be able to hold it up so we did we got we got it up and we Got everything set up, and we had this big giant truss right in the middle, and then we just recreated the stage. And so we started about. See, we were supposed to start at four. I think the show started at eight, 
So we were done by like three in the morning, and then we <laughs> had uh, Chick Korea was also on. But Chick, we told Chick Korea you didn't have to play. You know, you hear you're gonna get paid, and, but he <laughs> wanted to play. So he said, "Well, you're gonna play after Fleetwood Mac." Um, so the show started late, but you know we got it done, and uh, it was great because I remember Stevie that night. She just played it up. She was holding onto the pole, wrapping her legs around it, and singing <laughs> like she was a stripper. It was amazing. It was, but we pulled it off. We did not once in our brain did we say, "Hey, we're going to cancel," um, and we did it. You know, and I think the funny part was is uh, we had this giant stadium, and so Chick Corea comes up, and there's like maybe. 70 people <laughs> in front of the stage his true fans and chick was gonna hey you're my people he played for hours so I, re I remember laying on the stage with my hands behind my head with the sun coming up and going okay so we get to load this out and then we all went back to the hotel and the uh the promoters um had set up this really nice hotel ball it was a howard johnson's hotel ballroom but food and alcohol and say thank you to the crew for making this happen and of course other things yeah uh, but you know and then <laughs> we were you know we had to go to the miami stadium i guess to, to do the next show um and we from there on we had a you know we had a lot of broken gear a lot of broken things but the, then we took two weeks off um because the band went into criteria studios to finish recording rumors so we had like fixed that turned out all right. Yeah, <laughs> it was the guitar solos and the rest of the vocals. So they were in the studio. Right? We we found a place to set up and fix the gear and everything. And the tour went on. But didn't that was, didn't that album take like a year, a year and a half to make or something? It was like a really long well, process. Well, no, the, 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 the original uh, recording up in the Bay area. Right? Yeah, the Sausalito Record Plant. It started in February of 1976. They left April 11th for the basic tracks. Oh, okay. So the record came out in March of 19 February 77. So it was about a year. Yeah, it was Tusk the one that took forever. Okay. The next one that That's one took right. like eighteen months. But, uh, but I was at the record plant for a f for one week at the end of the recording session, which is, is was amazing. I amazing. bet. And I always go to the record plant. I'll go there this next week on this next. It's cruise. still there. Yeah, they just reopened it. Oh, okay. Because I watched uh, the yeah. Sound City. Or yeah documentary is interesting and again with the technology again putting a lot of these studios out of business well the record plant's coming back and in fact it was weird i was there and um uh mine and ken's record label that we owned our studio manager kevin is now in charge of reopening the record plant so i always go there it's just man you walk into that place and the energy is just i bet skyrocketing but, but the um on the flip side so like not a bad tour. What was the tour that, looking back now, you're like, it doesn't get any better than this? Like money, venues, talent, whatever it is, uh, amenities, flights, or whatever. Well, you know, I don't want really to look at it. Well, of course. Was there one you're like, well, oh, this is good? The, the opulence of, you know, private jets and everything um, was really the heyday of Fleetwood Mac. But, you know, I think more than that, it's more the energy of the people and the music. I think the story I tell about the Beach Boys 50th anniversary tour is really it because it was a joke, and it was a time in my life that I didn't I didn't think I would I couldn't I lost my child to cancer I didn't think I was going to make it I didn't I had no reason to live other than my other four children and finally said you know we're still here but uh, I wasn't going to do the tour I ended up doing it but it was a joke it was an industry joke but it ended up being this amazing tour with great people great music. Um, lifesaver, but it, you know, and then all of a sudden, wow, you know, when you hear people doing their 50th anniversary tours, you know, the Beach Boys were first, we were first, and it ended up being something that was so epic and so friggin' beautiful, you know, it was, 
um, you know, just everybody got along and, uh, you know, the hotels, everything was, everything was planned out right, nobody complained. Um, you know, there's a lot of psychology with the people involved, but that's, you know, I, I'm, I, that's my whole life working in the music business. So that, I think that the Bette Midler tour was amazing. Her comeback tour in 82, 83 was really, really an amazing tour to be a part of. She's got to be a hoot. I interviewed great. her once for a, on a film junket. And was, I could have talked to her for hours. She was amazing, you know. So <laughs> we're, we're, built, we're producing a show about that tour, uh, which is great. So, um, yeah, no, you know, there's been a lot of tours. Like I said, it's all the camaraderie and the people, and um, it's way beyond the music. When someone who's met so many and worked with so many famous people like you, and you're writing a book, there's that moment of like, well, how much should I tell, and how much yeah. do I? Because people are going to want the dirt, but I don't tell the dirt. I know ever, you don't. Never, I, don't I, I tell how the show. dirt made me feel. Right. I can say, look, you can read about this dirt. You know that Lindsay and Stevie didn't like each other, but this is how it made me feel that when I watched that they didn't like each other. Yeah. You know, that's what I write about. I won't tell anything. I won't say, hey, I saw this, I saw that, because there's no reason to. But I tell how I felt when I saw some of the events. And everybody knows the event I'm talking about. I'm just not going to say it. I'm not going to say the. It's honesty, trust, and, you know, loyalty for us and them. You know, they trusted us, you know, and there's no need to, for me to talk about it. But I could tell you how I felt when I saw it, you know. Like when working with Ricky Lee Jones, she's great. She's amazing. She I read her eccentric, book. You know, well, but then again, you know, she reads, you know, she was a drug addict. Yeah, she had a tough road. Right. So I write what it made me feel like seeing her drug habits. I'm not going to tell. I could tell you a lot of really heavy, heartbreaking shit that her and I went through, but I'm not going to. But I'm going to tell you how I felt watching her go through her addiction. We all know she had an addiction. I'll tell you how I felt watching her go through the addiction and how I had to handle the problem I had with her addiction, but I'm not going to tell you exactly what she did. There's no need to. There's just right. no need to. Well, you saw all that stuff take so many people down. Yeah. How did you avoid it, you think? How did, was my, it just... It was my youth. It was my Italian Catholic upbringing, knowing the difference between guilt. right or wrong. It worked. A lot of guilt. <laughs> it was, it was. But, you know, just knowing that, you know, um, you know, even to this day... I try to strive to do things to help people. You know, um, that's my my whole thing is mentorship. It's all about going to schools and uh, cruise ships has allowed me to really write and hone it in and rehearse it. But you know, I get every cruise I'll get somebody who comes up and say, "Hey, man, I lost a child, and I've never been able to talk about it. But I saw what you did, and now I'm ready to talk about it." Or, you know, I you know, God, my my mother has bipolar. And I understand what you went through, and you know, so you you have these connections that that tend to happen, you know. So, are there like organizations that you support, or you direct I people my, to? I support my son's charity, which is helping children living in extreme poverty around the world. Music cares for road cats that don't have insurance that uh, are, are, are you know that gave their life to the to the craft and have no royalties. Um, you know, in fact, I start we started a really cool CBD line. Knights of Rock CBD, um, and there's energy, sleep, and balm. And I laugh because one of the advertisements we're making about it is we used to use, you know, THC and CBD to get high. Now we use it just to walk. <laughs> right. But when you're ailing, you know, um, so hey, if you can't sleep, take this Knights of Rock gummy and put on a playlist. And here's a suggestion for a playlist: <laughs> if you want to have a good time, take the CBD energy gummy, put this playlist in, and walk through the streets of Cabo. 
You know, it's an experience. <laughs> yeah. But that's our way of giving something that's a little bit more than just saying, you know. Um, but everything we do is for charity. Everything that Knights of Rock is goes to a charity, you know. Right now, I've been sending um, hand crank flashlights to Syria and Turkey for the earthquake children and to the Ukraine for the children that are stuck in the bunkers. And, you know, I started sending solar lights to Central America. That's my son's charity. But in those areas, um, it's hard to, you know, in Ukraine, they can't get outside and get sun. They're sometimes trapped under in bunkers. So these lights, you crank them like hand cranks. Um, and five, ten minutes of cranking will, was bright LED light for ten hours. But what they do is they put the children in a circle and they sing and pray while they crank. So oh, it's a okay. therapy type thing with it. That's cool. So that's sort of the, um, that's where a lot of, so like my the book sales. So um, I got some really nice donations on the first cruise to Hawaii. So we sent, you know, we sent 500 flashlights to the Ukraine, Syria, and Turkey. You know, so we, it, that's what to me is my, my past. I've been blessed with such a great past and I'm so fortunate that it's my turn to give back. So I don't need anything else. That's my health. I thought of you when I when we go to uh, Maui and Lahaina, and there's Fleetwood's restaurant. Yeah, yeah. Does he own a piece of that? I mean, he owns it all. Okay. He has, well, he has some investors, and you know, um, I've been trying to get a hold of him. Uh, he hasn't called me back. <laughs> I'm sort of depressed in a way, but I understand because after we lost Christine, I think a lot of things. Uh, Christine McVie passed away November 30th, yeah. 2022, and I think a lot of us are just trying to find our way with it. You know, she was our matriarch, and she's done a lot for a lot of us. So. I know I'll connect with Mick. I went to the restaurant and had these really cool video pieces that I had found that are rare, and I left him a jump drive, and um, he's great. You know? Does he have a home in Maui? Does he does. He, okay. he has a home in Maui. He has a, I guess he has a home in Molokai. So he's a, he's a genuine great guy. He's so healthy living there, you know, and uh, the, they all are. The whole band's great. All the bands I work for, they're all such great people. Who, is know? there a few that you really stay in touch with a lot? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like the Beach Boys, yeah. You know, I haven't talked to Brian in a while. Um, but, you know, it's like, it's, you don't call them and just hang out, you know? I think that takes the special moments, and especially when they're touring. Let them yeah. tour. I don't want to get in the way. I know what it's like to be a tour manager and have the friend come and derail your day, and it's like, <laughs> eh, you know? I, I, I think it makes it more special when you run across them and you see them and don't contrive some kind of... I love getting together with my crew guys, my, my, my crew family, the Knights. We all get together, we Zoom, we talk, and we just yuck it up, you know, and uh, that, that, that's the, the beauty of it. I mean, you know, um, it's like Neil Preston, the photographer, said in, in my forward, you know, you'll always have much more fun with the crew than you will with the band, and it's true. <laughs> We're a family, man. We were a family in a really, really an amazing time. So, and you know, the Knights of Rock is just my way to get back. In 25 years of living in LA, I only had one Brian Wilson sighting, and it was uh, I went to uh, meet somebody for lunch at Jerry's a, Deli. It, no, it was up in on Mulholland. Yeah, um, it's there's a little like uh, strip mall area up there, and it's like Mul, right around Coldwater and yeah. Mulholland at the top of the hill. And there's a there was a, just a uh, diner yeah, yeah, in yeah, this yeah, place, yeah. and we're eating in there. And it's, there's an older guy sitting there. I was like, God, that guy looks familiar. He looks really familiar. And then I figured it out halfway through. I said, Holy shit, that's Brian, Brian Wilson. Wilson. Yeah. And and he was. I remember he was eating like oatmeal and a Pepsi. <laughs> and 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 they were just like he obviously is a regular because of like the waitress just brought him another without even asking or whatever you know he used to go to Jerry's Deli a lot I think he, that yeah. too many people were sussing him out well so. what happened was I was like I wasn't sure 
And then I saw him leave. And sure enough, some guy in his 50s comes running up after him with a, something to sign, a poster or something like, yep. So they not only knew who he was, but they knew he hangs out there because this guy camped out waiting for him to leave yeah, and stuff yeah, like you know, that. Brian's amazing. I mean, you know, he's so impactful to so many people. And, you know, I mean, I had such, a, you know, all my years touring with them, but the 50th where I really, you know, it was a special time um, taking care of him and getting well, you know, really seeing the real Brian Wilson where he's at today. And he outlasted his brothers, which is shocking, uh, yeah, you know, which is, yeah. you never would have figured that in the no. 60s. No. I mean, Dennis was always a character. I mean, yeah. Dennis was a, you know, like I said, I had Dennis on Beach Boys Tour, but I also had Dennis on Fleetwood Mac Tours because him and Christine were an item. So, and Carl uh, ended up being, you know, the musical the end of the Beach Boys. And, you know, it was Brian, you know, loved Brian. He loved Carl's voice, and he wrote a lot around Carl. So, um, but yeah, Brian, man, I can't say enough about him. He's the most impactful artist I've ever worked with. And Billy Idol uh, still looks great. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah. He'll still go out there and take his shirt off, and he's yeah. probably, what, 60-something? Yeah, you know, 12-pack. Yeah. <laughs> it's Billy. He's a great. I love touring with him because he likes history, and I like history. Um, I think, you know, yeah, you know, with Billy, um, I just got to the point where there was one thing that happened on the Billy Idol tour where for the first time in all my years of touring, I let my personal life cross into the business life, and right there I knew that my my touring days were over my you know i just got to a point where i said okay you know it was a lot that was going down and uh it was unfortunately on a billy idol tour and had nothing to do with billy but i, I just said you know i just i can't i can't do it i'm done i just knew it you know i was a comic you know i'm a comic and you know still go on the road and now it's more of the sea but you know there was a time when i was starting out i was doing you know 40 weeks a year yeah away from home and you're gone a lot I mean that must have been you know you had a wife and kid that's yeah I used to bring the children with me that's amazing it wasn't FaceTime yeah you know we can make phone calls you know we didn't have the money to make phone calls I mean we used to beg the promoters to put a phone in the production <laughs> office and just so we can all call home you know and then you were know, you a we, postcard guy? Did you send like those back? From no you know I wrote I wrote letters and stuff but you know um, when we were really <laughs> we had a thing called the blue box so back in the old days in the coin phones, well, the, 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 the coins would make different tones on the phone. So if you dropped a quarter and it was a low ding, it was a dime, it was a higher ding. Well, our technical guys made a blue box that had the sound of coins. So we'd dial the number and they'd say, insert 25 cents or 50 cents, and you'd push it and then it would make the noise. <laughs> and, then they, and then they would connect your call. I said, you need to add an additional dollar. You get your blue box and go, bing, 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 bong, 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 bong. So we always found a way to beat Perfect. the system. Perfect. You know? Yeah, yeah. So that's how we used to do it in the old days to talk to home. We had the coin phone. We had a thing called a blue box, and, we did, and the sound guys figured it out. So they would sell them, and we would all put them in the production office, and, you know, and you'd see guys in pay phones with this little box. And <laughs> that's funny. It's ingenuity, right? Yeah. So you know, before calling cards, you had it yeah, figured out. Yeah, it was it. So in your busiest year, how many weeks were you gone? Oh man, three hundred, three hundred, three twenty days a year. Wow. Yeah, because back then there wasn't a lot of us, so you were in demand. It's like when you finished one tour, you'd start another. Right. You know. So yeah, yeah, and then you would, you know. Yeah, you would learn to pace yourself, but... You don't have to do numbers, but was the money any good when you were... I mean... Yeah, money was always great. Okay. 
Oh my God! Yeah, they the bands in the old days used to share the wealth. I mean, they used to give you bonuses. You used to get tour bonuses. Yeah, I think that's unheard of these days. I mean, right? Uh, but no, the money was really great. You know, I think the key of it was um, making sure you kept your overhead down. Right. You know, don't develop a habit. Yeah, and, and, and it was easy to do. <laughs> yeah, it was easy to do out there. You know, but um, yeah, the money was always really good. I mean, and the bands in the old days used to share the wealth. They did. They were really, really good about it. And now it's, you know, I like everything. It's changed. Right. I used to be mad. Man, used to maybe have six or seven, eight guys to a bus. My son uh, is uh, in the unions now, and he's working. He sometimes he'll go to the forum and he'll see tour buses pull up, but there's 15 bunks in like one small lounge. They call them slave ships, Ugh. you know, because that's what these people are doing now. They're, you know, you, you don't need a but you don't need a you work, you go to bed, you take a shower, you go to bed, you sleep until the next day. It's like it, the whole business has changed. You know, no per diems on your off days. Um, I mean, uh, I mean, per diems only on your off days, not when you're working. Um, oh my God, it's it's become like, so bad compared now. Like, say, if Metallica goes on tour now, how many trucks worth of gear are they, they have taking? Eighty-seven trucks. Eighty-seven. I, I read the other day they have eighty-seven <laughs> trucks. How was and that? You know, it's you know what I mean. It's like okay, sure you're doing your gig, but how many would you take back in the day? You know, the biggest the Fleetwood shows. I mean, the biggest we had was ten. 87 trucks? Yeah, but you look at the U2 when they did that one, uh, the 360 tour. Yeah. They had 180 trucks. They had three sets. And they were in Europe, and someone called them out on their carbon. Someone said to them, the you, have enough, you have enough trucks that a truck can, one truck can drive to Mars and back. <laughs> and how do you think about that? And I think Bono looked at Edge and said, you want to take that one? Yeah. Because <laughs> no one knew how to answer it. So it was between that tour and then Edge got in trouble in Malibu because he had bought a piece of property that they wanted to develop. And it was you know near an environmental thing, and he got in some hot or water with that. Bono so forgot his glasses and flew the Learjet. Yeah, and wardrobe girl back to get him. So between and, these bad PR things, oh. like, we should hire someone. <laughs> so my buddy got hired for that. Yeah, you he know, was a uh, sustainability I, I, I coordinator. Think it's great. Or you know, but again, you know, it, to to me, it's like okay, you know, do you need eighty seven trucks? So if that's the show you want to do, then it's by God, it's your choice. Is it lights that's taken up? I don't know. I don't know. I just read it. I can't. I couldn't believe it's true. Someone said it was like over. 300 speaker cabinets and there was some kind of ridiculous wattage amount and I was like what how could that be yeah I saw the stones at uh, the new SoFi stadium in LA and I thought wow they're going to use this I don't know if, I've been to a football game there and they have this incredible 360 video screen that's a circle that goes over the and I was like to see them on that, I mean, you, even the cheap seats, they're, it's pretty close, but they didn't use it. They used their own video walls. St- video walls down on the field, which I guess that's, if you want a consistent show, they know their own gear and stuff. But You know, it's funny because we, we did a Knights of Rock show and a couple of guys were on tour of the Stones in one year that I was on. Um, well, the, and um, somebody had asked, so how many guys are on the sound crew? And someone said like 16. Or something like that, and then Bill Darlington, who was on the with Claire Brothers at the time, said, "When I was on the Stones tour, there was four of us. There yeah. was four sound guys. That was it, because we just knew how to dick. We knew how you know to coordinate and delegate. And I was sitting there going like, yeah, no, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy, you know. And like I said, it's like now, it's like whoever puts the most shit on the video wall wins. But I thought technology was supposed to like shrink the size of things and make it easier. No, no, these video walls are just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and." <laughs> You get all these, these, 
I know grandioso ideas, but you know, sometimes when you don't have talent, you got to cover it with something. Yeah. You know, I mean, look at Neil Young's doing right now, a solo tour. Right now, him and a solo to him, and that's easy, and it's packed. It's the Greek theater, three nights or whatever, because, because he's got talent. You get yeah. up there, you sing, you have a great song, and you tell a story, and that's it, you know? But, you know, yeah. I mean, that went, but you know, who might have out out put somebody down for what they believe is creative? The only thing that bums me out now is, going, is, is the backing tracks and the, the not singing. You know, that's the, that's what, that's the drag. You know, it's like this guy. Not. People don't care. As long as they, they don't see care. the artist, they don't. You know, to me, it's like, I don't know. I mean, you know what? Uh, again, it's so hard to. I had to. When I started to see my personal feelings get in the way of the business end of it, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. time to check out. Yeah. You know, and I was flying home on one of my very last tours, and I was sitting next to this amazing, like, I don't know, CFO or for some company, and we were talking, and he asked me what I did, and I told him. And he said, so what are the numbers like? And I showed him, you know, just didn't show him numbers. I showed him how complex the spreadsheets and the settlement sheets were and everything. And he was like, just blown away. He goes, man, he goes, that's like incredible. Because um, he goes, and then like near the end of the flight, he says, so I don't get it. He goes, uh, why are you making millions for millionaires and not yourself? And I went like, this is a good question, you know. And I started, he said, man, he says, you can do this for something that you did for yourself. And he goes, it seems, and then he said something that really hit me. He says, I think your energy's in the wrong place. And so I went, wow. So I started thinking about it more and more, and I started thinking, wow, if I turn my energy into more to helping people and doing this, and this is how Knights of Rock, you know, really, and that's, and so I started doing stuff for orphanages, and, and then I was, I did a show in San Pedro for an orphanage in Guatemala that my son used to visit. I just finished touring with Jeff Beck, and the tour was really difficult, and Jeff's def difficult, but that's Jeff. Well, Fender Guitars was the sponsor of the tour, and Fender came up to me and said, that was the easiest tour we've ever had with Jeff, <laughs> and thank you. And I said, because I never called him for anything other than give me guitars to get signed. I didn't need him. I knew how to handle Jeff. Um, so they said, is there anything we can do for you? And I said, yeah. I said, you know, I have an orphanage in Guatemala. They want to start a band, a marimba band and a band, because they want to tour Central America and bring money into the orphanage. What do you need? I said, I need acoustic guitars. I need some LP instruments, some drums. that they." So they sent me a whole bunch of stuff. I sent it to Guatemala. Then the, the, the NPH orphanage calls me and says, we, we need to hire a music teacher. It's $12,000 for two years for salary. I said, okay. So I said, so I went up into San Pedro to this one venue, and I just told everybody I'm doing this to raise money. Um, and I did it, the show, I did one of my shows early on, and then I Skyped in the orphans. And I said, I said, so what would music do to you? And then they started playing some of the instruments, and they said, if we had a teacher, we can do better. Uh, I raised the money plus some. Well, there were two people from Princess Cruises in the audience. And they came up to me after and said, would you ever think about doing this on ships? And I went, no, but, but well, we think this would be really cool on ships. I said, well, I do everything nonprofit. And they said, well, we just give you a cabin. You can sell books and do stuff, and it's an enrichment thing. And so I said, oh, I might as well try it. So I did a run from on this ship, believe it or not. It was my first ship, the Emerald. Um, and I ran from uh, L.A. to Vancouver, and I did like one show, I think. And they called me back and said, man, your ratings are just over the roof. I said, what ratings? They go, well, we, people write in on these cards. And so then I started writing more, and then I started then I started bringing the rest of the guys out with me. So the Fleetwood Mac show I do, it was all six of us. 
and we would banter off each other, and I'd put something on the screen and say, you guys remember this day? And then we'd talk about it, and hey, Ray, tell how you played guitar on stage, and we'd talk about <laughs> it. And so we did all that, and then COVID hit, and then um, I stayed home. I went up to my little place up in Northern California that I own, and I just started writing. I started writing and more episodes and editing and, um, you know, and so, so, yeah, right now we're in the middle of a, someone wants to license Knights of Rock and they want to take it to A&E or Vice or Access or Netflix. And I said, great, but I'm not working. I said, I'm not going to produce anything. I will write and you can license the Knights of Rock logo and everything and you guys can put it all together. I'll write the episodes and I'll get all the guys. But again, everything has to go to charity. So, mm -hmm. And it was really hard to get Princess to pay the charity because they had never, I, I don't know if they've ever been approached that way. So we agreed to how Princess pays the charity, donates, you know. Um, so, you know, um, the, and I'm, I'm God, I get so creative out here. I can write, I can edit, and, you know, if I go find a quiet space that the passengers can't get to and you can sit and watch the ocean and get your head into it and <laughs> record and so... You know, meet people like, you know, we get to meet each other and got Brent and Sarah and, of course, all the people that come and go off these ships that we all get to meet and, you know, and I'll see you again like, hey, you're going to be on the Emerald <laughs> or you're going to be on the Royal or, and, you know, that's, 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 that's great about it. And you're on with your, is it wife or? Fiance. Fiance. Okay. Yeah, yeah, How was she married. taken to the sea uh, life? She loves it. She's, in the, she's a retired flight attendant. Oh. So, so she, she knows travel. She knows travel. Yeah, yeah, but she. I should talk to her. She has yeah, good stories. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> that's how we met. Oh, on a, yeah, on a yeah, plane? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was a flight attendant. I came on with this drunk road crew. Oh, And boy. I was the production manager. So I was sober. And I said, here, give them, here's $100. Give them all a drink. Feed them. They will go to sleep. But don't talk to them. <laughs> uh, we sat in the back of the plane. We dated for a few years. And then uh, she had married her baby daddy at the time. And I had met Lisa. And we had Ryan and for years we always were trying to find each other we never did and then about six years six and a half years ago I was in Denver in a meeting and I looked across the street and there she was and I'm, oh my god and so we reconnected over a year found out that she had lost her son to cancer oh, same geez. kind of cancer so we were like wow that's really odd so um, yeah it's been really 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 great so we're gonna get married in September congratulations um, yeah 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 in San Francisco and uh, she comes and goes you know and it's like okay hey I gotta get some work done I love you you're, but you're a beautiful distraction but I gotta get some work done <laughs> but she needs to go home and say her parents are still alive and, oh, elderly, and her children and grandchildren so for me it's like go ahead just come and go oh we so, gotta have like what's so, the band gonna be at that wedding Come on, give it's me a DJ, man. Oh, come I'm on. Not, I'm not bringing any bands. Oh, <laughs> the greatest all-star band ever. No, band. you know what? I don't bring bands of that guy. Oh, God, it would just be that a disaster. Was, but the whole, all the road crews, I have a, two tables of all my ex-road oh, crew. All no. the Knights of Rock will be there. So, Well, the lighting's going to be great. Yeah. The lighting and sound will be fantastic. <laughs> the lighting and sound. Of, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, I know so. we gotta we got to wrap it up, but I want to do... Uh, first, uh, say the uh, the websites where people can find you and they, if they want to give or anything or hire you for Yeah, um, Knights of Rock, K-N-I-G-H-T, knightsofrock.com is the main website. Um, then 20kwatts.org, 2K, 20kwatts.org is my son's charity. And then if you're interested in the CBDs and the gummies, that's N-I-T-E-S of rock.com. Okay. We'll have links so, to all this on yeah, our yeah. site as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, yeah. yeah, and just, uh, 
And all I can say to everybody is, you know, just wake up every day and enjoy life and try to treat people like you want to be treated, and we'll all get through this That's madness. perfect, perfect. We'll get through this madness. Well, you I was always asking, do. yeah, I'm, I'm, the question I ask everybody at the end of everyone is like, what do you think all this, what you've seen around the world and the people you've met and the places you've been, what has it taught you about people? What has it taught you about the world, and how has it changed you? Love will conquer all. That's it. There's no love will always conquer evil. Doesn't matter how many people think the world is upside down or bad or whatever. We've, as a humanity, we've been through so much tragedy, and you know what? But again, if people can lose the fear of the have and have nots and understand that it's all going to be okay, man, you know, uh, treat people like you want to be treated. That's the main thing, you know. And if we just do that, that's just basically it, you know. Don't worry about what car you drive or how much money. Worry about what people think about after you're gone, man. That's the biggest thing, you know. I think, you know, that's it. Because people around the world, you know, it's like I said earlier, the biggest poverty is not food. It's being unwanted and alone and shunned and, you know. God, it's so easy to share a smile. That's and these great. kids are looking to us, you know, to do that. And the smallest, the smallest connection, the smallest little action can change the tumblers of time classic rock is good for instance yeah, these key, these people came out writing songs and did they know it was going to affect as many people as it did you know Marvin Gaye said it man love will conquer hate so that's all I can say is just, just treat people like you want to be treated that is the golden rule and don't worry God our health right yeah like, I mean God if you don't have health that's true that's so, true, and around the world, it's that's that's if people just people people are going to do it. We're going to get there. <laughs> we always will. I mean, we talk about what a hard time our country is having. You know, uh, we are. Yeah, we're divided and everything else. But God, you want to talk about a division? Think about what Abraham Lincoln in that time. That was a. We've been here before. War. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get through it, man. <laughs> just, but you know, turn I, off your TVs. I say it in one of my shows. Turn off your TVs, man. Go to a youth center and just hang out. You learn so much. I always said that, like, when the uh, pandemic happened, it's like uh, you, we didn't need a human virus. We needed like a computer virus. You know, it, it's yeah. like because it did the opposite. Because it forced us inside, away from each other, when really we're spending already too much time inside, away from each other. You know, just we need to be outside <laughs> talking to people on a human level and reminding them, oh, they're just people like me too, because you it's know, so easy. The internet just divides us all into does, these little, tiny little bubbles. Once again, music is changing that. You know, uh, I see that with the pandemic and everything that was happening in the music area. People are getting tired of recording on a friggin' computer. They're yeah. tired of of digital technology, and they want to be in a studio looking at each other, playing and sharing love. It's coming back around. It yeah. really is musically, and I think that people are going to come back to that. They're going to want to share life more. Um, I think I see it a lot more with you know, as much as we hate to talk about the youth and all their technology and everything. I think they have a better way to communicate rounded with it they're using that with the social skills i see i don't think we give them the break i think the millennials were on the millennials all the time but it, you know they grew up in a really crazy time 
Yeah. You know, we gave them a trophy, but God, you know, you and I, we grew up and yeah, there was wars and there was stuff on TV, but we didn't watch planes fly into buildings and people yeah. stealing our parents' 401ks or it's stress or it banks means... banks taking our homes yeah. away. You had to worry about getting drafted. Yeah. You know, that was the different worry, but uh I didn't have that and uh yeah, there's an innocence to not knowing about that stuff. And now to be inundated with it every day, yeah. it's stressful. It's, it's said, man, but if you just get up every day and you, you know, see things as they could be and not as they are and treat people like you want to be treated, we're all going to be okay, man. Oh, that's great. Well, thank yeah. you for doing yeah. this. And I appreciate it. So good to meet you. Leo, see you, you too. Yeah, we'll be on ships. Yeah, I'll see you again, probably <laughs> the next one. Okay, thanks for doing it. Leo yeah. Rossi, everybody.